The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. The Tea Stop Inn. Anna Howard ACS is one of Australia's top cinematographers in the fields of TV drama, low-budget features, big-budget TV commercials, and an incredibly broad range of documentaries. In 2004, she also became only the fourth woman in history to be awarded accreditation by the ACS. Anna, welcome to the Tea Stop Inn. Thank you very much, Ben. Nice to be here. What have you been working on recently? Hmm, It's been a fairly busy 18 months. I'm in the process of working on two feature docs. I did a feature doc last year, uh, which has screened at MIF and I did a kids TV show for the ABC and Netflix. How do you find moving between documentaries and drama? I really enjoy it actually. I really like the different the different disciplines. I've always tried to do documentary because I think that it's uh, just the skills that you have doing documentaries really helps with narrative as well. It's nice to kind of jump away from the organised, you know, scheduled production of drama onto kind of the bit more chaotic and uh, just not knowing what's going to happen next of documentaries, which yeah. I really, I really love. Um, and also I just really like doing docos because, you know, you meet really interesting people and go to great mm, places. It's just, very true. Yeah. And then I do like TV. I've done some TV commercials as well this year. So, yeah, they're all very different um, mm. and it's great to kind of spread yourself out. Working across all those different forms. They all benefit each other. Yeah, very much so. There's an interesting tradition within the ACS, I think, of people working across all three of those forms. Look, I like the fact that the ACS has people who work on all the different disciplines. I really like that. Um, I am particularly keen on documentary and I really respect the really good documentary and current Mm. affairs shooters, like people who shoot foreign correspondent and those kind of top-end shows. I just think they're amazing and I kind of aspire to be a bit like that. <laughs> in a sense that you know they're just they're on their own they're like it's incredibly difficult but they're pulling a story together and I think mm. that's something when there's a small crew you have a lot more kind of control in a, in a way yeah. and it, yeah it's really remarkable what they can achieve I think sometimes with drama a lot of other things get in the way as far as you know there's just a lot of people around yeah. um, and of course on commercials there's agency there's clients there's Video so village. documentary exactly it gives you um, <laughs> You have a lot more freedom in a sense, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the same kind of disciplines apply as far as looking at the project, working out a style, working out what's going to suit the project best and regardless of what you're working on, commercials, TV, drama, features, documentary, it's kind of the same process. So what's your process like once you start on a project? Once I've been given the job, obviously, as I said, I sort of spend as much time as I possibly can with the directors but also bring my crew on pretty early on and um, give them a rundown really an honest rundown of what it's going to be like. For instance, like on South Solitary, it was we were shooting in a national park, we couldn't drive, we had to walk everywhere, we had long walks in and things like that and the money wasn't great and the hours were getting. <laughs> so it's like, you know, really lay it up front. Just go, this is what it's going to be like. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you do want to do it, great, welcome aboard. 
It helps people to know going in what they're up for. Oh, I think absolutely it does. There's yeah. no ex- like there's no expectations from them that it's going to be any different. Yeah. This is the way it's going to be and you're either on board or you're not on board and that's fine and it's not like I'm not going to work with you again. It's just like I just need you to be committed to the job and committed to the circumstances. But I think one of the things that I do with my crew and really from early on is that I keep them in the loop. So all the conversations that I'll have with the director, all the initial location surveys, all, all the sort of aesthetics and the look of the picture, I'll bring the, my crew into those conversations right from the start. So I'll start particularly with my grip and gaffer, mm. talking to them about it. I'll send them all the location photos. I'll send them all the reference photos that we've talked about, all the reference photos that the director's given me, all the film references that the director's given me. So they're part of the process. I'm not one of those DPs who says I want this light here with this on the front and that there. Yeah. Like I bring on people that I work with who I trust and who are going to contribute to the process and to the creative process as well because I don't know everything about being a group and I don't know everything about being a gaffer. And when they are completely on board with the creative approach, there's so many problems that can get solved before you even know about them. Yeah, definitely. There's so much that they can add to the the work that you're doing, which then frees you up to actually figure out the more complicated stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that particularly now in the lighting department, lights probably are changing more than anything, even mm. probably more than cameras. So definitely. there's just new lights coming out all the time. So I don't know about all those lights. I, I'm not really on top of that. So I'd rely hugely on my lighting department. But also I also give them a very good understanding of what I like. So mm. I'm, I'm in that period of cinematographers who have gone from old to new, which is a really fortunate thing. So I know yeah. all the old lights. I know how the lights work. I know the quality of light that you're getting. And how light itself behaves. How light itself behaves. But you're going from like Fresnels and, you know, old lights right through to modern lights. And mm. like you do learn on each one that there are new lights that are coming out that have got more of the characteristics of the old lights. Yep. But there was a period there where going from those kind of Fresnels and HMIs and things like that to through to like the new M18s and the big, you know, LED lights and things, they just did not have the same quality at all. I think that knowledge is really good and I think you need to let the gaffers know that that's kind of what you want. And I think the same thing's working with grips as well. There's a lot of new grip equipment out there as well. Mm. And so it's good if you more descriptive about what you want and references and visual references about this is kind of the way I want it to feel and this is the way I want it to look and this is, yeah. you know, and they can then go, oh, I've got this new light which is really great or we could do this here or, you know, and it's, and it's good and I think the crew feel a lot more involved in the process. And you get better work from people when they you feel def- that. Definitely get better work. Always. From people, yeah. And the, and the camera department as well. I mean there's new bits of camera gear and stuff like that but. Constantly coming out. Doing documentaries is great also because you are a small team and you need to know the gear. Yeah, yeah. You know, so <laughs> I must say when I took off on the um, AI doco and we were using an Alexa Mini and, of course, I've always had an assistant with Alexa Mini. Yeah. But there were certain situations where we'd split off and my operator would go, you know, an assistant would go off and I'd have the camera and I'd be going, oh, my God, I don't even know how to get back to the menu. You know? <laughs> so it was a very quick, quick learn it yeah. was. Mm. Now, you, you came up through the ranks of camera assisting and then operating. What was that experience like? It was great. 
I, I thought it was fantastic. I started off, I got a job as a runner on a uh, documentary that Stephen Mollis was directing in 1982 or something. <laughs> or No, it would have been earlier than that, 1981. And then from there I met the production manager and she took me onto a drama series at Grundy's and oh. I worked there pretty well for two years. I think I did three or four shows. It was the days when there was actually training ground. So there was the ABC, there was Grundy's, there was Crawford's in Melbourne and they were really fantastic areas to be brought up in and you really learned your skill. And it was television so it was quite fast. You got given opportunities as well. Yeah. Like, you know, I got to do some focus and not very much but towards the end a little bit. Yeah, that was really great. And then I came up, I loaded on a few jobs and then I started focus pulling and you meet a lot of people in the department and particularly working with the DPs, which I still, you know, confer with them and ask them questions. I mean, I really do see them as my mentors or the DPs that I worked with when I was an assistant and I think that's an incredibly valuable thing to have. Who are those mentors? Well, Andrew Lesney was a big one. He was always kind of available, which mm. was terrific. Definitely people like Peter James yeah. and Russ Wood and yeah, John yeah. Seal, Steve Arnold. Yeah, so it was a, it's a pretty good pool of people who are yeah, incredibly yeah. knowledgeable. Just Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I know. Very sad that he's gone. Yeah. That left a massive hole in Australian cinematography, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was a, it was really sad. What was it was it sad like? to lose him because he really was such a um, – he was always available mm. and I know a lot of um, cinematographers around my, my age and sort of from my era, certainly everyone had a really strong bond with him. Yeah. And he was he was very present yeah. and, you know, incredibly generous, incredibly yeah. generous man. He, he was a friend but I never worked with him. What was it mm. like to actually work with him? It was good. I mean, I didn't ever do any, like, really big projects with him but I'd sort of come in and he, when I started operating and shooting, he kind of gave me an opportunity to shoot second unit and second camera for him on the show. Which was that? Which was called uh, Doing Part Time with Patsy Cline. It's such a beautiful film. Yeah, it was really great. And, of course, I was just, like, as nervous as anything and I just like, oh, don't worry about it, it'll be <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, and, you know, I worked on Cyclone Tracy with him. Wow. Yeah, it's a long, long time ago. But just a, he, he was great. I mean, he was he was kind of just a normal person. He didn't have any egos or yeah. anything. He was very much a part of the crew. Yeah, he was a great guy, really great. At this point in your career, you're also, I assume, mentoring people coming up through the ranks. What are your thoughts on the role of mentors in the industry? Oh, look, I think they're incredibly important. I do get people ringing me, particularly people I've worked with who are now moving up into shooting themselves who do ring me and ask me questions. And I think it's really important because obviously I had that when I was moving up and you have to give yourself to people and give your knowledge to people and pass it on. I tend to get a lot more people kind of asking, you know, a lot of people ring me and go, can I have coffee and can I, um, can you tell me how you kind of get jobs and things? And I'm like, well, you know, perhaps you could tell me. <laughs> But the other thing that I've found, not necessarily recently, but within the last year or two years, people having a lot of emotional problems as well. And so I have actually made myself available to some people for that sort of support as well. Like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Do, do I really want to be in the department? I'm going through this terrible emotional time. You know, it's that sort of thing. So I think that it's really important that we're there mm. to support people in that situation and often they're quite young people. I think it's something that our industry traditionally has been quite bad at because it's intense work and involves long hours, lack of sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it also attracts people who are emotional, intuitive. How big a thing do you think it is that mental health is starting to come to the fore in our industry? 
Oh, I think it's really, I mean, look, I think it's amazing that people have reached out and, you know, asked me to kind of talk to them about mm. things and hopefully I've made a difference. But just, I think just people knowing that there's someone there who will want to listen to them is really good mm. and, you know, who's genuinely concerned for their welfare. Absolutely. And, I mean, one of the people I spoke to, he kind of decided to drop out of the industry and go away and do all of these things he really wanted to do, like travel. He's a really great photographer, so take photos. And he didn't know whether he wanted to come back to the industry, but after kind of a year of reflection, he's come back and wow. you know that's a really wow. great a really great thing really great mm. but also an incredible strength character on his behalf to actually just pull out because he was doing very well and he was getting a lot of jobs and um, I think that that's really great and hopefully I kind of helped him mm. get the strength mm. to kind of do that because I think the problem with the film industry is that people kind of live it it's not like a job it's life it's not nine to five and it's, it's not nine to five but not so much that but I think that people kind of um you know it represents who people are and I think that that's problematic because I think that people need to find other things to fill in the time that they have because there, there are gaps that you'll have and it's those periods of time where people do seem to go down mm. you know get really low I mean a lot of I have friends who like surf and travel and they seem to be pretty rounded people, yeah. but the ones who are just kind of sitting around waiting for another job to come in and that kind of really defines who they are. I think that's sad. Mm. Yeah. So in that balancing act of commercials, narrative and documentaries, how do you find doing commercials? Uh, I actually really enjoy doing commercials. I tend to do a lot more kind of narrative performance commercials. They're fun. They're really fun. I mean, the budgets have kind of gone down substantially. They'd there, has been, there has been a big change. There has been an enormous change and I certainly don't get anywhere near the the amount of commercials that I used to. I mean, I'd, in the sort of mid-2000s, I was just flat out busy all the time. But that's not the case so much anymore. And I think that's probably not you not getting those. It's that those commercials just aren't being made. I now. think that's, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a different It's a different era. Yeah. Definitely a different era, yeah. So with narrative, how's your approach to that? The first thing is whether I like the script or not. <laughs> Generally, I can sort of do that now. I mean, I guess in the past... But mind you, I haven't done many bad films, I don't think. My approach is really t to read the script and see whether I'm going to like that. Mm. Also to meet the directors or the producers and see if that's going to work. Yeah. Because sometimes it's easy to pick up that you're not really on the same wavelength. Mm. Um, and so it's probably best not to do those films. Yeah. Yeah. And th look, that's changed a lot as well because the budget's become much smaller and it's much more rushed and the times aren't time isn't there and it kind of doesn't help being older because then you can remember the earlier times when there was actually a little bit more time and money <laughs> and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, if it, look, if it's not doable, then it's kind of not really doable as far as time goes yeah. and money and things. Yeah. I just generally turn them like say no because I just um, it just becomes frustrating and there's young people who probably are quite keen to step up and do those. But so that's what I generally do. And then if I get the job, I would um, spend a lot of time with the director. I remember Andrew was saying to me, as soon as you get the job, just start pre-production straight away. Yeah. Regardless of how many months ahead of being paid it is, just just start, wow. start going, start. So I, I do do that, spend as much time as I can with the directors. And what, what are you looking for in that process? I suppose you're trying to dissect the script and the characters, the emotion of the film, mm. so that you can then start to think about the best um, visual approach to it. You know, most directors have been working on their films for a long time, so they have a pretty good idea anyway. But my main thing, I mean, if I look at all my scripts that I've broken down, it's usually all broken down into emotional situations, like what's happening with the characters, 
what's their relationship with each other in this particular scene. You know, you have an overall picture of how you'd like it to look with the director, of course, because it's not really your decision, but you can certainly bring a lot, you know, your ideas to the table. And then really it's it's about setting rules and, mm. and um, you know, Creating making sure that... Yeah, exactly. How do you go about joining the dots between those emotional levels and the practical aspects like lighting and lensing? I mean, look, an example that I always give is that people can fight. Like you can have mm. fights within families or whatever. Yeah. And they're very different the way they take place. I mean, if you observe on the street things that are going on in people's body mm. language, you know, you can fight. You can have people who are kind of in each other's faces. You can have people who are ignoring each other. You can have people on the other side of the room. I mean, all those spatial things are really important as to how you're going to block and set up that particular scene. I mean, mm. you know, once again, it is the director's ideas about how they want that to take place. But they're the kinds of things that I look at, I guess, mm. um, just how are we going to see this? How are we going to see this scene? How are we going to play it? How are you going to play the relationship between the characters? As somebody who's camera operated for some absolutely extraordinary cinematographers, how do you find now operating or not operating? Well, a lot of the time you don't get a choice. It's kind of like the DP <laughs> is the operator. Um, I like operating. I really do because mm. I really like that relationship that you have with an actor. When you're an operator, you're kind of the first person there. Yeah. They're performing to the camera, to the audience. So there's a really great relationship, you know. I remember at the ACS Awards many years ago, George Miller was the guest of honour and he talked about the fact that when he was doing Mad Max, the actors would look up and they'd look at the camera operator first and then they'd look to him. Yeah, it's a it's a really uh, really thing. important that you have a great relationship with the actors because they do, they'll, they will always look at the operator first. Yeah, yeah. it's like you're a, a proxy for the audience. You know, I mean, you have to be kind of really careful about how you respond to them. Like, I think I often just, like, give them a smile or, or just, like, look upset or whatever, depending on what they've been doing, or give them a little nod or, yeah. you know, some encouragement. I mean, it depends on who it is, of course. I mean, if they're more experienced actors, they probably sometimes, you know, they know they're great and so they don't <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, But they all do it. They do all do it. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. I was, you know, I was married to a camera operator and I know his relationship, you know, he'd just fall in love with all his leading ladies and it was just this <laughs> incredible relationship that he'd have with all of the, the actors always, you know. And he was, he always he always said, I'm, you know, I'm the centre of the universe because I'm the camera operator. And, and you kind of go, well, yeah, I guess you are in a way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find the, the transition from film to digital? I didn't really have so much of a problem with that. My first film that I shot was on a Sony 900. Oh, really? Yeah, and I used <laughs> a, uh, a Century, what are the, I can't remember oh, even yeah, what they call. I was trying to remember the other day. Adapters. With, with an adapter with super speeds. Oh, wow. Yeah, Zeiss super speeds. I did a lot of work with the 900s but never used the, um, the Century adapters. Yeah, I mean I used it on like the P2, you know, the wow. Panasonic P2, those tiny little P2 cameras. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it looked beautiful, actually. So, I, look, I, didn't, I never really had a problem. The camera's not the most important thing to me. Yeah. It's um, trying to get the images and trying to tell the story. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I kind of embraced it, I think. It was never, you know, I, I kind of, I don't, I know a lot of people have started shooting film again, a lot of um, young DPs, and it's, it's like, it doesn't really bother me that I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I know that I can because yeah. I've done it for so many years. But, I mean, talking to Peter James the other day and he's like, I, I'd, I'd be happy never to shoot 35 mil again. I uh, love digital. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, people like Russell, I mean, they they like shooting digital. Yeah. You know, they really do. And I'm sure that 
like Don does as well. I mean, he uses the Panasonic, which is an amazing camera. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's about telling the story. So really it's irrelevant what camera you've got. That reminds me, we, we had David Gribble over here for lunch one day and my son asked him, why don't you shoot film anymore? Because we, you know, we talk about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and Gribb said, because there's something better now. Yeah, that's right. And isn't it amazing that it's all the incredibly experienced Academy Award winning cinematographers the, who were just like yeah. going, you know, digital is amazing. I, I guess the, the younger cinematographers are kind of yearning for this mythical thing. Yeah, and it's kind of quite interesting. You know, I have have them coming up to me and going, oh, look what my, you know, we shot on 16 mil and blah, blah, and they'll show me this thing on their phone and I'll just go, I'm sorry, I can't tell that you shot it on 16 mil. It's on a phone. <laughs> like show it to me at the cinema or, you know, and then I can see that it's shot on film but depending on what the distribution is or where it's being shown. I was watching something the other day and thinking, oh, that's a really interesting film emulation LUT that they're mm. using on that. And um, and I looked it up and it was actually shot on 35mm film. But Yeah, right. The one thing I do miss about film is the discipline. You went through the process and you did the process properly and you had your rehearsals and you were very sure of what you wanted and what you needed and the schedules were such and you could only shoot so much so you had to be yeah. much more definitive about what you wanted and that's, um, you know, that was great. Whereas now you just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And you can have that discipline with digital but of you've got you to can. decide to have it. Yes, that's right. It's got to be a team decision with the, the director. Exactly. I mean we, I shot a film in Germany in 2009 but, um, you know, we decided at the beginning of the shoot we just said, okay, we're going to do this film at a 20 to 1 ratio. Wow. And that's the way it's going to be. And 20 to 1 is pretty well what you would do a film shoot at, you know, a celluloid shoot at. It did. I mean, he's an incredibly organised, amazing director. But it, but it was good. It was. It did put the discipline back in. It wasn't just shoot for the hell of, you know, for the sake of shooting and yeah. keep going, keep going. He knew what he wanted from the, from the actors. We had time to set stuff up. Mm. I mean, in some ways you've kind of got a little bit more time because you're only going to shoot a small amount of time so you get it right and you go through that whole process, you rehearse the actors, you make sure the focus pullers got their marks and everyone everything's, knows when everything's on. in place, everyone knows when they're on and and you just do it and you do, yeah. you know, two or three, maybe four takes and that's that's it. There's huge benefits to that. There's huge benefits to it. even for the editor, I mean, this is something that keeps coming up, the fact that the, the actors know when they're on they, they all know, you know, that they're, they're going to be giving a performance in, in a few takes rather yeah. than maybe it's take 30. And, I mean, what, what are the actors thinking? Like, what, what do you want from me? Hopefully the director has spent enough time with them where they've got their character. They know what they want and it might just be a beat or a look or something that they want again or maybe the actor's not quite there the first time. But, mm. you know, that they, they should be all be sorted before you go into it. I mean, this kind of like... Oh, I don't really know what you. Oh, I don't know. You know, the actor's going. What do you want me to do? What do you want? You know, what do you want me to do yeah, differently? Yeah. Oh, look, I don't know. We'll just go for another take. It's like, well, there's a huge difference between a take and a rehearsal. Yes, well, then you're sorting things out in a rehearsal, and you're sort of, you know, you're getting to the point where, yeah, that's exactly, you mm. know, what I need for that yeah, yeah. for that moment. What do you think is the most challenging project you've ever done? Oh, look, there's so many different challenges in different ways. Like this kind of um, the film I did in Germany was quite challenging. We didn't have a lot of money. We were, um, it was meant to be snowing. It wasn't snowing. Um, <laughs> weather is always, always challenging. And as a DP, it's like those commercials the, where the client wants it to be bright, sunny day, exactly. and it's just not. Yeah. I mean, I did, I've done two, three weather dependent films yeah. where the weather is actually a really big part of the story. One of them was perfect. 
We just got the perfect weather the entire shoot, which was amazing. Wow. Which film was that? That was called Rabbit and we shot that in South Australia and we wanted like very European kind of look to it. So we wanted cloudy skies and no sun and that soft light and honestly it was like that every single day. It was remarkable. Wow. We did get hit by that huge storm that hit South Australia where all the whole state went blacked out. So we did have to have a day off but that was amazing. But the film I did with snow where we didn't get snow and then I did another film called South Solitary where it's meant to be overcast, windy, huge seas, like massive storms. We're meant to be on this island and it was like the Great Southern Ocean was just flat, glass. <laughs> it was sunny every day. It was it was incredibly stressful. But yeah. after that film I just realised that it's out of your hands. There's just nothing you can do. you just got to embrace what you have and just make adjustments. So how did you approach that on that film? Like how did you control the look or did you just go with...? Sometimes I just couldn't control the look because we yeah. were like wide shots outside, sun setting. So we just embraced it and shot it like, oh, isn't it looks great, doesn't it? The sun's <laughs> setting and it's really beautiful. I mean we did, we had some visual effects, we had some special effects in key points. Mm -hmm sky replacements, we shot down at the water when there was big seas. I think the poor first assistant director did 43 schedule changes. Wow. So it was pretty hard but we were slowly running out of interiors to shoot. Just got to a point where we just, with the amount of time we had in the schedule and also because it was a lighthouse, it was a lot about uh, sunrise and sunset when the lighthouse light goes on and the lighthouse light goes off and so they're coming and going from the lighthouse, you know, after their shifts and things. You just run out of time yeah. so you just have to embrace what you have. I find that uh, dynamic between the cinematographer and the, the first AD an interesting one because the first AD really needs to be saying, let's do this as fast as possible and the cinematographer really needs to be wanting to spend time on finessing things. Mm. It's an incredibly close relationship mm. and you have to get on really well yeah. and you have to be on the same page and you have to have respect for each other and, and under definitely an understanding of what each other's jobs entail mm. because first assistants have a lot of issues as far as like, you know, cast availability, location availabilities, time, but cinematographers also need to um, explain to them why you need things shot at a certain time of day, why you need yeah. this look. And, you know, there has to be a mutual respect. Kind of one of the first people I ask when I go into a job, if I'm going to go into a job, who's firsting it? <laughs> Who's firsting it? Who's catering? Yeah. Who's the production designer is probably my first question. Who's doing unit, strangely enough? When you're on a job for a long time and you have a lot of, you know, a lot of crew and they're trying to move people around and you're trying to get in and out of places, you know, unit location slash location um, and location person obviously is another one. Oh, it's just an integral part of the shoot. It can, it can make or break a shoot. If you've got a good unit department and they're looking after you and you're working long hours and getting your cups of tea and like all the little things yeah. that people probably don't think are that important, to me they're just absolutely crucial that things on set move really smoothly mm. and unit that's unit who does that that at the end of the day affects your capacity to actually get things done that's right that's time you know yeah. if they're organized and they're on top of things then things just fall into place if you get a bad unit person you just notice what it disaster it can mm. be and how much time you can waste just waiting for things to happen there's a lot of people in film like every single cog in the wheel is so important so important. I think people don't look at that. I think people tend to look at the above the liners and the, yeah. you know, heads of department, you know, like the DPs and the directors and the firsts and they sort of don't think about all those small, not small people, I shouldn't say that, but all the other people who are absolutely are integral. Easily overlooked by. Easily overlooked. I mean, I never go home without saying goodbye to the unit guys and thanking them, you know. It's just a really important job. And they're there before everyone. They're there before after everyone. everyone. They're after everyone. They're making sure they 
if good ones know what's going on, they know what's in shot, they move stuff, they, mm. you know, like you're turning around, they know when you're going to turn around, they know that you've got, you know, this KD and all of, yep. you know, the video village and everyone else in shot. And, and it does affect the quality of the end result. Well, it does because you get more time yeah. and also you and a, you lot can spend cal- time. a lot calmer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead of yelling that there's things in the back of shot all the time. <laughs> Calmness on set is an interesting thing as well, I think, because there are sets where there's a lot of yelling and tension Mm. and, uh, you know, there are sets where it's very calm. I think a calm set generally produces better results. I think in the old days, like when I did my first film in Australia because I did one in New Zealand previously, that was my first one I worked on, Mm. but when I did my first film in Australia, which Dean Semler was the DP on and David Williamson was operating, the only time I spoke to Dean on the entire film was when he was sitting his printer light and that was the printer light I was going to put on the cans of film to send them to the lab that was it that was the only time I ever spoke to him there was a real hierarchy like a hierarchy it it wasn't unpleasant it was just that that's the way it is Mm. or that's the way it was and I think that that actually creates calmness on a set Mm. because the people who are talking on set and the people who are all the dialogue that's going on and whatever is where it needs to be, which is with the DP, the director, the cast, the camera mm. operator, you know, the heads department, the gaffer scripts and the yeah. first. I mean, that's where it should be. It shouldn't be all this chat going on everywhere around. I find now that, you know, lots of people are there, they comment, opinions are happening. And the, the other thing also is if you have an issue with someone or something, then you need to be able to discuss it off set. Mm. Mm. Whereas a lot of that, things seem to be discussed on set now like in the spur of the moment people get upset and it's just not a good environment at all how do you think that's happened is it tied up with that shift to digital or is it society or is it all of that stuff i think maybe the shift to digital i mean i remember one of the first jobs i did on digital and we had a what did they used to be called you know it was a data wrangler but they were like a dit and it was some guy who came in who was some computer buff or something like that and like he was telling me how to light oh you can't do that you can't do this (laughs) It was it was quite strange. It yeah. was like you don't need Done to come before. onto set in front of the entire crew and tell me that something that I've just shot is not acceptable. I mean, it's you know, it's like twenty, and I was like, yeah. and sort of even like people within departments who aren't the heads of department who have an opinion on things, and it's like, well, not really. Your... I think maybe part of that is having really good monitors. Yes, that's set. probably right. Exactly. Yeah, where everyone can see everything. And there's there's not so much trust, I think, yeah. which is a which is a really sad thing. I think then in some ways there's there's something great about everybody having to trust that the cinematographer and the director have worked this out, and this is mm. rather than all crowding around the monitor and asking a million questions. I mean, I I still find my favourite people that I work with my favourite directors are directors that direct from camera. Yeah, they yeah. don't direct from a monitor. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And it also makes things a lot more quiet mm. because I've been on shoots where, you know, literally the director's mi- not miles but so far away from the cast yeah. watching a screen that they can't possibly see the nuances in performance and what happens. There's a real disconnect there. Total disconnect. And, you know, like even using like megaphones and things like that, yeah. like talking to the actors through a megaphone, you're just like what on earth are you doing? Or, or like, sending instructions exactly. via the radio That's through right. the first AD. That's it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, just a completely different thing. And, like, I, you know, like I've done films with people like Bruce Beresford. I mean, mm. he is over your shoulder right on camera the whole time. Or Shirley Barrett was the same. She never looked at a monitor. She was always right next to camera. And you see behind-the-scenes photos from the whole golden age of Hollywood 
and the director is right there next to the camera mm. and right there mm. with the actors. I think it's the other thing about doing documentary as well is that the director's mm. always sitting by camera yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're doing, um, <laughs> because they're usually, you know, the interviewee is usually either looking at them or they're looking at a, you know, a mirror box. So it's there's a, a real intimacy between yeah. the director and the, or the questioner mm. and the, well, which is usually the director. And, yeah. and the, the person they're interviewing. So there's, I mean, like, I think that makes documentary so engaging because mm. it really is that intimacy there. Yeah, yeah. Whereas some films, they're just, it's it's just so disjointed. Mm. And then when you go into commercials and people always have an opinion about this lighting or that lighting and they don't understand the camera and they don't understand that, you know, it looks dark on the monitor but actually it's going to look good or just weird kind of things like, you know, there's no trust. It's like, well, we're doing this interview with someone who's been in a car accident and their brother's died. You know, you don't want to front light it and make it all happy and jolly and, like, you actually yeah. want to use the cinematography to put Unders- a bit of mood into it. Happening. I mean, you're trying it. That's yeah. what the emphasis is on this particular commercial. So... Mm. Why wouldn't you use the camera to kind of help enhance that feeling of dread or, you know, sadness or yeah. whatever? And, you know, then for a client to come in and go, oh, it's too dark. And you <laughs> kind of go, actually, just look through the camera. It's actually not too dark. It's, yeah. it's fine. And this camera, you actually work really hard to make things dark on this camera. <laughs> this isn't dark. <laughs> Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, you just have to, you, you learn to be um, patient with people. <laughs> also on commercials, of course, because in the old days you also had a, um, a an accounts manager and that accounts manager played a really important part. So you had... They were the, the conduit, weren't they? They, they were the, the relationship between the client and the, and the agency. Mm. Directors tended to have, you know, they'd done a lot of pre-production, a lot of work, and so the agency would trust the directors a lot more and the clients would really have be kept, you know, almost a little at bit... Almost arm's length. Almost at arm's length from... Yeah. They would ne- I never, ever, ever remember the agency ever speaking to the director, for instance. Yeah. Whereas now you actually get agency people sometimes or I've been on sets where people yell out about performance. Really? Yeah, and it's, it's terrible. They're directing the actors. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's scary. Yeah, it is. It's it's very different. I mean, it's very strange coming from like doing a documentary like last year. I worked for eight months on a documentary mm. and then I came from that onto a commercial and you're just like, Wow. This is really oh. different. <laughs> I'm pleased to say I've never seen that. That's yeah, I've really, seen it a few times. And wow, it's, it's really shocking. unpleasant, and, but and um, terrible for the talent. Oh, just awful for them. But that also comes down to like the last commercial I did was, um, you know, I had a good amount of money, good amount of schedule, a great actors. What can go wrong? Mm. N- nothing. You know, it, you've just got the time. You got the yeah. Yeah, yeah, the director's done his homework. He, it was yeah. it was the smoothest commercial I've done for years because wow. everything you know. And I, I actually said to the um, to the agency, the CD. I just said, "Oh, it's so great to work with good actors. You know, it's so worthwhile working yeah. with good actors because you just get these. You get really great performances, and you're just not trying to get blood out of a stone. You know, they've got it. The <laughs> yeah. actors have got it, and it's just yeah, it it's is really a wonderful great. thing. It is, and actors. it's oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really, is fantastic. What was the documentary that you did last year? Uh, the documentary I did was called Machine and it was produced through Finch, which is a production company in Sydney that does mainly commercials, but they do a lot of other things. They do uh, long form, obviously. Uh, the producer, Michael Hilliard, is, uh, also produces Chef's Table, which is quite a mm. um, top-writing food show on Netflix. They also have a – they've set up a thing 
at Finch downstairs, which is um, called Creatable, which is about teaching girls about STEM. So uh-huh. they have girls coming in from different schools. They have a workshop downstairs and they do coding and they do building, they do electronics, they do. Fantastic. So just getting girls interested in in that, in STEM, mm. um, which is really fantastic. I think they've got like 150 students now or something. Wow. It's quite a, it's well established now. They're a great production company, really good. They're kind of one of the top production companies in Sydney. So it was called Machine and it was on artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it was a fascinating documentary yeah. to do, really fascinating. We travelled a lot. We went. We met some amazing people, went to the UN. That was pretty exciting. So I sat wow. in a session at the UN. It was really, really great. And it went over eight months. We did six, seven different shoots, seven shoots. So we'd sort of come, we'd go away for three weeks, come home, uh, then we'd organise the next yep. group and then we'd go over again, go away again. Wow. Yeah, that was that was really fascinating. So it was, it was generally a film. It was an overall look at AI and, and uh, machine learning. So it looked at things like uh, obviously autonomous cars. It looked like autonomous weapons, wow. warfare, uh, surveillance, which unfortunately didn't get into the final film. It did, so, uh, things like um, communications, mm, social media, wow. all kinds of areas. So it was, a, it was a general sort of look at it. It wasn't a doom and gloom. Oh my god, yeah. the robots coming and everyone's going to take they're going to take all your jobs away. So um, what insights did you get from that? It was it was really fascinating as far as you know. There's some awful things about AI, and there are some, some really brilliant things. So mm. the awful things are obviously surveillance is pretty awful, autonomous warfare is pretty horrible. Social media, pretty bad. But on the other hand, there was an app we were looking at. It's it's an app where people can talk to the app about everyday problems and things like that. Wow. People who are anxious or socially yeah. kind of disconnected and the app sort of learns who they are and they can uh, sort of have this relationship. So it's kind of like wow. a diary in a sort of yeah. way, except it's reciprocal. Interactive. It's interactive. Yeah. So wow. that's kind of really interesting. And obviously medicine was an enormous one which is just really quite amazing, the things they're doing in, in medicine. Really? Uh, they're doing things. We've met a, a doctor in St Louis in, uh, in the States and he was implanting these sensors into people's brains who have epilepsy. Wow. They can keep track of all the vital signs so you know when you're going to have an episode. Wow. So things like that. But also there's a lot of stuff happening with which we didn't go into so much, but I guess I've become more interested because a friend of mine's had a very bad accident and has been left paraplegic. So a lot of things to do with like nerves and, you know, working with people with disability, which is really quite fantastic. One of the things I find amazing about doing documentaries is getting to go very quickly and deeply into areas that we otherwise wouldn't get, you know, the things that are otherwise behind closed doors. Yeah, that's right. Other worlds mm. that either are behind closed doors or that you just have no idea about yeah. at all. I remember doing a doco when I was a camera assistant years ago about belly dancing in Sydney. I'll always remember it because I was kind of like, you know, I'm a good North Shore girl. So I, I guess, I mean, apart from working in the film industry, I've done a lot of travel and things, but um, it's just a part of your city that you just have no idea about. Yeah. So it was all about kind of the Lebanese community in Sydney. And I was wow. just like, wow, there's this whole other world out there. You know, it was really it's right fantastic. There, yeah. And you just separate. wouldn't normally engage with these people. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of stuff's really, I find that really such a privilege, such a privilege. It is. It yeah. really is. The other thing, I've done a lot of work with Indigenous communities and I think I've been extremely lucky to have done that. I have pretty good knowledge of Australia and the Indigenous situation, like a lot of different ones, through art, 
through education, through, you know, dances or historical stuff. And, I mean, it's just they just have such a whirl and wealth of knowledge to share with us as, as Australians and the majority of Australians have had no relationship with Indigenous people. They haven't been exposed to them. They don't know anything. They kind of put them in a, you know, these are Indigenous people. Stereotypical box. And very, very stereotypical. And if you travel, you know, if you if you do a lot of stuff with Indigenous people from all over Australia, you actually realise how diverse they are. You know, there's a whole continent of cultures. It's a whole continent of cultures. And there's a whole lot of Indigenous nations within Australia that are just completely different culturally. It's just really important that we learn learn about that and it's a great shame and detriment to Australia that we don't have that knowledge. Hopefully slowly it seems to be kind of happening. It seems to be that people are made a little bit more aware of it but um, we have a long way to go. What do you think the biggest things that the rest of us could learn from Indigenous culture? Well, I did a, I did a job last year which um, was up in Arnhem Land and it was about, it's called Both Ways Learning or Two Way Learning. They do two different syllabuses. So they do the national syllabus mm. and they also do the Indigenous syllabus and they entwine those together. So, you know, they obviously learn to read and write and all of the three R's, but also they go out to country and they learn about politics, they learn about the land, they learn about land management, they learn about their history, their culture, their dances, their responsibilities. And to see those two things coming together was really quite Quite amazing. That was set up by uh, Yunapingu in Yakala. Yakala that's what I, how I call it. <laughs> Yakala um, up in in Gove, which is the, the uh, non-indigenous name for the. And that's just absolutely fascinating. And that's going on up there all the time. Wow. And I think that uh, it's great. I think we should all do kind of we sh- we should really send kids up there when they're young to get an understanding. Not necessarily up there, but just into communities where they do have so much more to offer. You know, mm. I think the other thing is is that there's a lot of freedom with kids up there. There's you know that maybe not sometimes not great, but other times yeah great like. It's a great playground and, you know, they're out yeah. about doing stuff and it's a beautiful environment. Yeah, and because they have the culture and the stories and they know all the places to go to and, like, you know, I get, I've been taken out to Balgo. the kids took me out to these water holes and showed me all these paintings. I mean, they have a great respect and a great understanding of the mm. land and, you know, that's yeah. something that most urban kids just have no idea about. Yeah. And I think that's that's really important that we do. You're one of the very small number of women who've got their ACS letters, the accreditation. What's been your experience of being a woman in cinematography and and climbing up to that level? When I first started, there was a few women who were older than me who were cinematographers. So Jane Kenny, Erica Addis, Helen Barrow. There, there were a few mm. women. You know, I, I did always get comments about, oh, we've never had a female in the camera department before. But I never really had a problem with it. I'm, I'm the only girl of a family of four. So I have three brothers. <laughs> and um, so to me, it was just like, it, it didn't just matter. Just like being at home. It was just like being at home. It was like, <laughs> it was fine. I didn't have a problem with it. I was very much accepted. I mean, I think I worked because because I was good at what I did, not because I was female. I mean, I don't think I had any sort of special treatment as far as getting a job because I was female or not getting a job because I was female. The odd occasion it was like, oh, you know, we've only got so many rooms and there's, you know, four crew and so you'd have to share and I'd be like, that's fine, I don't mind sharing. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, no, we can't really do that. Um, 
But it was always fine. I, I never had a problem with it at all. It's, it's changed recently though. Um, How so? Well, I guess the, you know, I know that there are funding bodies that will only work uh, on productions, give funding to productions that have women mm. on the crew, which I think is probably a good idea. Yeah. But I guess it depends on how good the project ends. I've spoken to female cinematographers who have found that that's because there's now these compartmentalised films funded under the gender equality programs that are now finding that they're competing for those jobs with the other female cinematographers rather than just the general pool yeah. of jobs that are out there. I think, look, I think the biggest problem with um, being a female, if I look back and reflect, is that I think the opportunities aren't really there for women. They tend to work on smaller budget, get offered smaller budget projects. They tend to not get the big American films that don't kind of move up. You know, like there seems to be a lot of women who are in second ACs, mm. first ACs, but really it sort of stops there. So you either, you know, you kind of have to jump up to being a cinematographer and then you jump up to being a cinematographer and then you kind of go back to lower budget yeah. productions. Yep. And so where a lot of the men tend to go like seconding, firsting, operating shooting second unit on big American films. Yep. That just does not happen for women. Mm. It just doesn't happen. I mean, I the, got offered a job yeah. last year with an American DP as an operator because I'd worked on an American film as an operator a few years ago and I couldn't do it because I was on the documentary and they sort of said, well, who else is there? And I just kind of went, there's no one who's done an American film. Like there's Mandy. Wow. But there were no other women and I sort of put forward all these women and I was like, well, this person shoots heaps and operates on all the jobs that they do. They're really good. Yeah. This person's, you know, op operates on a lot of TV and they're just like, no, if you haven't done an American film, then you can't do it. And wow. so it's it's really problematic. You know, and look, I, I really like all the guys who I came up with, but they have gone on to greatness, you know, big, yeah. big budget productions and I haven't. You know, like I don't want to think that it's because I'm not good at what I do. Mm. I just think that it's just it's just because I'm a female. That's really disappointing because I think that women only move into positions when they feel that they're really good at it, like yeah. when they're ready for it and they're confident. Yeah. I find that a lot of men and younger men particularly are a lot more, a lot more confident. Whereas, I mean, I got, I got a thing from my agent a while ago and it said camera operators needed must be male because you need to handhold the camera for five hours straight so you need to be strong. And I thought, well, no woman is going to actually take that job if they don't think that they're up to it. Yeah. Whereas 50 men are going to say, oh, I can do that. Whether they can or not. Whether they can or not. <laughs> and so you think, well, the woman who says that she can do it, I can guarantee she can do it. Yeah, yeah. And I just kind of find it's things have changed lately. The pattern that I've noticed with female cinematographers and female directors is success not leading to opportunity. Yes, I would totally agree with that. Look, there's some great Australian DPs. You know, there's Mandy, obviously, who's mm. done very, very well. Yeah. Zoe White. Yeah. But you have to go overseas to do this. And that's, that's really a shame. You know, that really is a shame because... It should be possible here. It should be possible here. Yeah, it definitely should be. And, I mean, I know that Bonnie's doing some, you know, bigger budget mm. films, but she's still not getting the opportunities to work on the American, like doing second unit on big American films and getting that yeah, opportunity. Yeah, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense. No, and I, I don't think Bonnie wants to move overseas. I don't know. I can't speak for her personally, yeah. but I know that she likes working in Australia. And you shouldn't have to leave your country to get the opportunity to go away. Especially I mean, when the, the big films are coming are here. Are coming here, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
and she's done a lot of work and she deserves to. Yeah. People deserve it. They've done their time. They've worked hard and long and they're mm. good at what they do and it's it's really a shame. I, I, I find that really sad. That's something that I'm going to be working with at the ACS to try and um, encourage, the, you know, the DPs on those films who are generally a lot younger than I am, who are now shooting those big films, yeah. to take people on because there are women here who've got the skill. It's not like mm. they're not skilled. It's just that they need the opportunities. They need to be given that and, and I think a lot of the times it may be just that they're not the obvious choice. Yes, and a lot of that would probably be because the kind of work they're doing doesn't have the same sort of visibility yeah, because yeah. women generally aren't given those jobs. So because so they don't a, have the visibility. It's just perpetual, um, yeah, you're just sort of stuck doing these low-budget sort of things. I mean, you know, look, I get offered jobs all the time with other women directors, you know, or even male producers or whatever, but they're, they're all films that are very low budget. Yeah. You know, they're $2 million budgets or they want you to put your money back in or they want you to shoot a <laughs> film in two weeks. And I'm like, I'm nearly 60. I've been doing this for 40 years. I kind of want to do it's something not where, not where that's, you, need to be. you know, I've struggled and struggled and struggled and I actually want to do something that's going to give me more opportunity, mm. not less opportunity. And I will just, I'll just get frustrated and it just won't work for me. Yeah. So I'd rather just like take a backward step in a way, just not do those jobs because I know that they're, they're not for me. What role do you think the ACS can play in changing that? I've been thinking about it yeah. um, because it's definitely since I got off of that job last year and no other woman was given the opportunity, um, I just really felt that it's time that actually we try to become proactive about it. I don't really know what the solution is just from thinking about it and I haven't really talked to anyone else about it at all, so here we go. I think that, you know, I do know that the ACS has mentor programs mm. where they mentor young upcoming DPs with other DPs. Like I think Peter James might have done it on Ladies in Black. Yes. I, and I think that Dion did it in a film in yeah. London. But I think that the women we're talking about have got enough experience not to just come onto set and be mentored by someone. Yeah. I think those women need to come onto set and actually be given an active role. Yeah. So I think that we need to somehow get together to... Because it's a, the, the the problem is not women getting started in the industry. No, no, it's not. That that's actually been established. Established, and there are women who've been time. doing it for a long time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. It's the it's that stepping up yes. beyond a certain point. And I don't know whether you do that through intervention in the films that are being made. And it's a, it's a funny one because then you go back to what we just spoke about, which is like women feel like they're being pushed into this thing because women are getting the funding and then women, you know, like so it's, you know, I just worked on another doco where it was like, no, no, we need everyone on the crew to be female. And I was just like, mm. why? Like why? Why can't we have a male sound recordist, you know, like why do we have to have just yeah. women? It's ridiculous. The world isn't just women. It's not just men. It's like, and I like working with a mixed crew. I really like it. But I think that somehow we have got to There's be not, able to reach yeah. out to the DPs who are getting these films, yeah, yeah. these younger males, and go, look, you know, you, you've got to give people an opportunity. And they're not going to do a bad job because, as I said, if you offer a woman second unit on an American film, she won't do it if she doesn't think she can't. Yeah. She just won't do it. Yeah, yeah. Women just don't put themselves in a position of fail. You know, they just don't. So at least give them the opportunity to say yes or no. I, and I, mean, so I, I, don't, I, I don't think off the top of my head of 20 names that would be capable of doing second unit on a big film. 20 like, women? 20 women, oh, easily. Wow. But they're not doing that kind of work. 
No, because they're not offered that kind of work. Exactly. That's the difference. Yeah, it's 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 really it's difficult. It's that that disconnect between ability and experience mm. and the CV. And that's it. If you don't have the credit, you can't get the credit. And yeah. It's as simple as that. And I don't really it know. It becomes how. a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you just throw your hands up and just go, "Well, Christ, you know, what do you have to do to do it? To be yeah. actually offered or considered, even considered for jobs? Mm. You know, it's quite sad. It'll come." For sure. But it just seems to me to be quite strange that Zoe's shooting... Um, big American series. Big American series and things and Mandy's obviously shooting huge yeah. films. And so, you know, why doesn't it happen here? Mm. Because there are films that are like... Most of the women I know apart from Bonnie are shooting films that are around one or two million dollars. Bonnie's shooting films that obviously a better budget. But why do you kind of just constantly, constantly... And, and the only choice to not do those kinds of films is to not do films. The other thing that strikes me with women in key creative roles mm. is that thing of having to prove yourself each time. There's an assumption with men that once they've done it once that they can do that, whereas with women there's a general expectation that they need to prove themselves each time. I think that's an expectation that the women have of themselves. Actually, I think that women just generally don't take risks like men do. Mm. They need to be confident. They need to be. It's just an innate behavioural thing of women, I believe. You know, you want to be confident. You want to know that, you could, that you're up to the job. Mm. You don't want to, you know, maybe let yourself down or just be, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's complex. <laughs> Psychology of women and men, but yeah. it basically just comes down to that, I think. And it is opportunity. It really is opportunity and it's really, you know, women just need to be given more opportunity. And I think one of the things about the ACS is because we do have members that are doing the big films and we do have members that have done big films, who've done second unit on big films, who've done operating on big films. There is the potential to have much more of a leadership role in helping women make that step up. To, yes. to work that will then give them the opportunity to prove that they can do it in a way that gives them the CV that then leads to other work. I'll write that down. <laughs> but it's, I, th- I think that I, I find that the older DPs, you know, the people like Russell and John and Peter James and yeah. people like that, are probably more likely to give women that opportunity, which is really strange. Why do you think that is? I don't know what it is. It's just like, as I was saying, like when I came up through that era, I just never even thought of myself as a female camera assistant. You just, just didn't even cross my mind. I was just operator. a camera assistant. I was just, you know, super good at what I did and I was always busy and I worked with, you know, all kinds of people. But now it's, um, and they you know, even working with... And they didn't care as long as it was through, in focus. Yeah, they just wanted you to be good at your job. Yeah. I don't know. It seems to be like you do hear about a lot of jobs and I'm look, I'm not trying to be, I don't want to sound disrespectful or anything like that, but there are a lot of young DPs who are getting jobs and then even, you know, their whole departments are reasonably inexperienced. Yeah. And they surround themselves with people who are less experienced. It's not like, okay, we've got this group of people. And mind you, when there was film, it was definitely you had to have the skill yeah. because it was expensive. Otherwise and that's it, just, it, it was. wasn't going to work. Yeah, so you, every single person, like I can name all the DPs that I came up with through the departments and they have all done probably a similar amount of work as I have up to the point that I started shooting on films and things like that. Like we mm. were trained, we all did a certain amount of time. We did our 10 to 15 years as an assistant and then we kind of moved on but now that doesn't happen yeah or there's a lot of film schools so you go to film school you do a master's in cinematography you come out you've got friends who you've met at film school they get funding you shoot their film you just go on from there it's not the same because there's, there's much more to it than just cinematography 
There's yeah. organisational skills, there's management skills, there's, you know, understanding the script, breaking down the script, and learning there's, about... There's what, that whole thing that it's a, it's a managerial role as well as a creative one. It is a managerial role. One. Yeah, and it's also, you know, 90% of being a cinematographer is uh, problem solved. Yeah. You know, on your feet, like how yeah. am I going to solve this issue that, you know, and I've got to do it now. <laughs> and if you don't have the experience in how, how do you do that, how do you work out schedules and how best you can make things work and what gear you can use and, like, just... There's a gazillion kind of things to being a cinematographer. It's not just about shooting pretty pictures, that's for sure. That's great if you can, but, you know, there's a lot of other things that come into it. A lot of other things you've got to do first. A lot of other things you've got to do first, yeah. (laughs) Anna, thanks for stopping in. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. And that concludes our final episode of Season 2 of the T-Stop Inn. Thanks so much for listening. Don't worry, we'll be back very soon with Season 3, starting off with a special two-part episode talking with Academy Award-winning cinematographer John Seal, ACS, ASC. I'll be talking with John about his work with some great directors like Peter Weir, Sidney Pollock and George Miller, as well as some of the great movie stars of our time. John will also be talking about his creative process and how he crafted the look of some of his great films. So make sure you're listening for the start of Season 3 of the T-Stop Inn.